As always, we want to thank our sponsor, the Norden Group of Salt Lake City. Why do portfolios of large institutions, endowments, and pensions look so different than the portfolios of high net worth individuals and families? The philosophy at the Norden Group is that you should invest your portfolio like an institution. This approach leads to complete transparency. Some key questions to ask yourself. What do I really own? How much am I paying in fees? What costs am I paying that are not disclosed? Would I be better off in a low-cost index fund? At the Norden Group, we conduct what is called a portfolio audit, which can help reveal these and other important details. Call us to set up your appointment. Investment advisor services offered through Townsquare Capital LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. SEC registration does not constitute an endorsement of the firm by the commission, nor does it indicate that the advisor has attained a particular level of skill or ability. Townsquare is not affiliated with any other named entity. Well, uh, back again here. Um, before we jump in, as always, wanted to thank the Norden Group. Um, if you've got seven, eight figures of investable income, they're your guys. Um, close to Christmas here. I guess we haven't thought. We probably won't do an episode on Christmas, or will we? I'm thinking probably not. I How strong we'll is your marriage feeling, Dan? <laughs> I think we probably better skip a week. We'll skip a week. If I have time this week, I'll put together something that we can release on Christmas, but maybe not even. I mean, you shouldn't You shouldn't be listening to this on Christmas. Hopefully you guys have better things to do on Christmas. Yeah. for the re- If there's a bunch of really sad people, like sound off, you know, let me know and I can put something together. But I'm, I'm assuming that we can probably skip out on next week. Um, you know, I, but I think we can do one on New Year's. Oh gosh, how sad am I on New Year's? Uh, we'll get we'll we'll have something the week after Christmas. We yeah. might record ahead of time. We'll see what's going on. Oh, we'll be in St. George, won't we? Yeah, so we'll bring our stuff. Bring our stuff down there. Um, slow week in the in the world of cycling. We had an interesting cyclocross World Cup in Val de Sol. Uh, super snowy. Always kind of fun to watch snow cross. It's like a whole different you know whole different ball game. Um, World Cup just barely ended. That's not. That's kind of a world event. I don't know yeah, if I cycling think, wise. I th- yeah, like wasn't Argentina that won? Congratulations to Argentina for winning the World Cup. Do you know who they were playing? Um, probably <laughs> not the United States. Our, our, our awareness of the World Cup is limited. No, uh, like I the Netherlands. The, I don't no, know. the U.S. lost to the Netherlands. Okay, we got beat out by the Netherlands. They were playing France. I understand. Oh, we. And I guess it came down to like, oh, aha! <laughs> there you go. French joke, uh, no, came down to penalties, I guess. So mm. I figure that's something you should be aware of. I mean, the World Cup only comes once every four years, right? I'm sure everyone listening is more aware of this than we are. So that, That's not like a flex, though, Dan. Like, you should be a good global citizen. That's going on. I know. Well, no, I wasn't flexing. I was just... Yeah. Not a lot of not a lot of cycling news this week though. I'm trying, I don't hmm. even think we had any, like, fun bike releases or anything. It's kind of that slow time of the cycling year. Where the cross is getting kind of predictable. and Actually, that's not true. This week's cross race was interesting. But that's why I've got such exciting things to talk about today. So. There you go. Yeah. Actually, I, I have to take it back because uh, Mikhail Ventura now won this last cross race, I think. And he's that's like two in a row. And I don't remember the last time somebody who isn't Vanderpool or Van Aert, like other than Ellie Isabeth, has won a couple of cross World Cups in a row. But maybe that's because I don't pay that much attention to cross. Um, Dan's topic today is interesting. Very useful. Um maybe even controversial but before that we've we've got to do the quiz ready for another quiz dan oh yeah i'm always ready for these so it's that time of year um we're not like we're not quite to 
the point of the year where people are really looking hard for new bikes, but we're getting there. <clears throat> I think some of us, you know, are like, like roughly thinking, oh yeah, maybe I want to do a new bike next year. Start the process of thinking about what you want. Um, if you're not familiar, a website that we really like when we've had good luck with is the pros closet. This isn't sponsored or anything. Um, it's like a, it's like a used bike retailer. I, I have ups and downs for buying a bike from them. But one interesting thing that they do is they actually weigh their bikes. And this is interesting because increasingly in the cycling world, bike manufacturers don't want to tell you how much bikes weigh. Have you noticed this? Like if you go on to, if you go on to most bike companies' websites, they will not tell you how much the bike you're looking at weighs. And I, isn't that because it's a little difficult to display it because it depends on so many things and right. Depends on size, depends on color. Um, somebody pointed out that like there were the, the specialized Epic pro from a couple of years ago, there was like a pound and a half difference between the black one and the blue one or some crazy number like that. Yeah. It's, it's shocking how much paint weighs. Right. So there's a lot of things that can throw it. So I understand fundamentally why they don't, but like Scott will still tell you Canyon still tells you Trek, I think tells you on their website. Um, but like, Specialized doesn't, Cannondale doesn't, um, you know, like most, most brands don't. And even on like the cross country bikes or like, even, the... on, even on the road bikes, like hmm. Orbea doesn't, I was on their site this week, you know, um, actually giant and Orbea both have like a disclaimer. It's like bike weight. And then it's like a question mark and you click on it. It just explains why they can't tell you what the bike weight is. Cause like, who knows? But the pros closet is interesting because they will actually just weigh the bike mm -hmm. and tell you, and, and usually, I mean, with mountain bikes, at least set up tubeless with no pedals. There's like a standard. So every once in a while, I think it's interesting to cruise through there and see like how much a bike weighs and guess how much it weighs and be like, oh, okay, well, I would assume this bike would weigh this. It actually weighs this. So mm. I have two scenarios, hypothetical scenarios. I'm going to walk you through four bikes total. I'm going to kind of explain like, this is a rider who's this big looking to spend this much money. Here's two options. Guess how much these two bikes weigh. Okay. This will be interesting. So both cross-country bikes in both cases. So we'll start out, a rider looking for a size small bike. And they're looking to spend, let me see what the price was on these. And these are bikes that have already sold on the pros closet that I'm walking you through here. Um, around like under $4,000. So a rider looking for a size small frame, looking to spend under $4,000. We have a Scott Spark 930 from 2019 and a specialized uh, chisel from 2020. The specialized chisel is an aluminum hardtail. The spark, of course, is a carbon um, uh, full suspension. Um, the chisel costs significantly less. This bike sold for $2,300, both in roughly the same condition. The spark sold for about $36. So over $1,000 more. And I'm going to walk you through. This is a size small spark that has a Shimano XT drivetrain, as a SRAM NX crank, so that's a little heavier. A Fox 34 Stepcast Fork uh, factory. DT Swiss X1700 wheels. It's got a dropper post. You can ask me any questions on the build to try to guess the weight. Okay. Size small. Pretty decent bike, right? Decent bike. Yeah. Do you have any other like significant questions? The tires what are tires? Uh, Vittoria um, uh, Mazas, which is like, I think it says. I'm not familiar with Vittoria. Like kind of a down country-ish tire, not a full trail tire, not light. But spark carbon frame, it's the second tier. How much would you guess this size small bike weighs? Okay, I'm. I want to say twenty eight pounds. What? Almost spot on. Twenty eight pounds nine ounces. So almost twenty, almost twenty nine pounds for a, a size small bike. Wow, which is interesting. So um, we'll move over to the next one here. Uh, specialized chisel, size small. This bike has. Um, there was see. an aluminum hardtail. Aluminum hardtail, okay. uh, aluminum industry nine wheels. Uh, it has a X01 drivetrain, dropper post, 
pretty straightforward. It's got like a RockShox Reba fork. Size oh. small aluminum hardtail. It's an X01 drive tank train. X01 drive train. Yeah, that's a nice aluminum bike. Yeah, it is a nice aluminum for twenty. And the bike market is is worse than it was when these bikes sold. And it's a small. Or they, is it a twenty er Yes. Yes. Um, this bike was like twenty two hundred dollars. Has ardent two point three five, so not light heavy, tires. Heavy tires. Okay. I'm gonna guess twenty four pounds. Twenty two pounds six Whoa. ounces with a dropper post. That's... So this kind of goes back to what I said, like really consider hardtails you know wow that's think, light the full suspension bike same size and everything that cost you know 1500 ish bucks more was how much is that like 29 pounds this one's 22 yeah that's, that's a big old gap especially for that size small rider who probably weighs 100 pounds yeah and doesn't feel the bumps as much as a heavier rider no no not at all interesting huh hmm. so second scenario this is somebody who has a little more money and we're going to be looking at size large bikes now um, these bikes were, are going to be, we have two, uh, one is a, uh, a new, so the newest generation Santa Cruz blur CC X01 axis, all the candy, like okay, the nicest sweet one, bike, right? Yeah. Sweet bike, 8,200 bucks lightly used. Okay. Um, the other one is a Yeti SB 100 that sold for about 8,000. Uh, so a couple hundred bucks cheaper, but essentially the same price. Uh, the blur to give you a full walkthrough CC. So again, large frame. We've got a Fox Transfer SL dropper, DT Swiss Reserve, um, uh, Santa Cruz Reserve 28 wheels, uh, X01 axis drivetrain, SID SL suspension. It's got Aspen 2.25s. How much would you guess that bike weighs in a size large? Oh, gosh. I'm not going to do very good at this. I'm going to say... It's a size large full suspension with a dropper post. I'm going to say 25 and a half. 23 pounds, one Whoa. ounce. Wow. Very light. This is almost like, exactly Joe Cochran's bike here. Yeah. Probably. I kind of um, suck at this. Well, no. See, that's, that's surprisingly impressive. light. Very yeah. light, right? For a very capable bike. But they didn't get it for free, so. No, but used 8200 bucks. I think retail, that one probably went for like 10 I should say the prices on the pro's closet used to be better than they are. Yeah, they're um, not super cheap lately. Still a good place to buy a bike, though. Okay, that's, that's surprisingly okay. light. So for about the same money, your other option would be a Yeti SB100. Now, this is a bike that Yeti's discontinued. This was an excellent bike. It was a great bike. It's not my first choice for a race bike, but this was like an awesome, 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 like Nike dad bike, you know, not looking to race, but looking to do cross country style riding for about the same money. Uh, you get a mechanical X01 drivetrain, um, Fox factory suspension. Um, the Santa Cruz, I should say had a hundred mil fork. This has a Fox 34 step cast. So 120 up front, hundred out back. Um, it has aluminum wheels, but the highest end DT Swiss aluminum wheels, 1501s, uh, Fox dropper post, and was weighed with a specialized, what tires? Let's see, eliminators. So relatively heavy tires. Tires are heavy on this bike. Okay. About the same money though. How much would you assume that one weighed? Okay, I'm going to say this one's 25. This one clocked 27 pounds, five ounces. Oh my ounces. goodness. So this is interesting. And this That's is why- a huge spread. Huge spread. Now I will say, this isn't really a fair comparison because those bikes are designed to do different things. The Blur is like a World Cup cross-country bike. The Yeti is a, it's a cross-country bike, but like a traily cross-country bike, right? Like a, a down-country bike, as much as I hate that term. If you are shopping for bikes, there are differences. There are significant differences. And a lot of people, a lot of Nike parents would have bought that Yeti for their kid. And for Nike style riding and racing, that blur is superior in every single way. 
you know, mm. if you have a hardtail or something and then want like a fun bike, I could totally make an argument for that Yeti. And again, the SB100 is one of the all-time greats. It's an excellent bike. But this is kind of your reminder that as you start to look for bikes this season, like find out how much they weigh. You will be surprised. Like that Specialized, you were surprised how light that was, right? Yeah. Like an aluminum hardtail. You, you can make an aluminum hardtail really, really light. And that's going to be a fast bike that's going to be great on pretty much any Nike course. And except for like a super flat bumpy one you know you know i think sometime i would like to do have you do like a segment on just how to make a bike light and oh and, yeah and, you know, and the biggest thing is and, tires and like the cost the most tire yeah and like just the most cost effective ways the bang, oh, bang for the buck ways to make your bike light just, oh a hundred percent because some of the the upgrades i would see people make in the industry i'm like that's stupid that's not making you're like upgrading from fox performance to factory suspension i'm like that that's a lot of money for something that you're, you know, isn't really going to make your bike all that much better. Um, interesting stuff though. No, that is. Yeah. I, I thought I would do better at that game than I did. Well, yeah. Cause I think, I think you're, uh, I think no matter what the bike is, you'll almost always be surprised either by how light or how heavy it is. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, like with that blur versus the Yeti, the Yeti is a more capable bike and you can ride it on bigger stuff, but not vastly bigger. And for the same money and granted Yetis are overpriced. They're brilliant bikes, but they're overpriced, right? But for like the same money, you know, it's yeah. You should the think blur is going to be way faster. Yeah, yeah. So interesting stuff. Um, as always, if you have quiz questions you'd like me to run by Dan or any feedback, happy to take it there. But um, is is this episode? So we've already kind of done a sweet spot episode, have we? I think we did, didn't we? Do a sweet spot? You no, know, it's something that we've we've probably mentioned it before. I don't think we've dedicated, I'm positive we haven't dedicated an episode to it yet, but, um, but it's something we've mentioned before and I guarantee you've heard, you're going to get sick of hearing from it because we're going to keep talking about it a lot and a lot and a lot. But really the focus of this episode is, is polarized training, right? Which is awesome because there's a really easy pun because it's, it's Christmas next week. I'm going to call this episode the polarized express. Okay. That's funny. That's good. That's good. That's really good. Right. So I was going to say this episode really is probably best described as like the relationship or like the, the point counterpoint polarized versus sweet spot training, the relationship between the two, right? Well, actually not because I hate, I just, the whole polarized sweet spot debate just kind of drives me crazy. Is it like a false dichotomy? Like you don't have to pick between yeah, the two? Yeah, you really don't. It's it's kind of a dumb debate when you think about it because really like polarized training is kind of like a, like a method of training. Whereas sweet spot to me is more a type of workout. And um, so it's like a flawed question to say, do you, yeah, do you, you favor really can't, sweet spot or polarized? It's like, it's like saying, do you prefer hammers or wrenches? You know, I mean, Right. Yeah. What are like, you, what are we talking about? Yeah. It's like, what are you trying to do? Right. Like know? is, is Michael Jordan or Nina shooter a better athlete? Yeah. It's like, uh, you could maybe compare those in some ways, but they're not really, that's not a, a useful or productive conversation. Yeah. Right? And I, uh, you know, and like comparing like sweet spot to like long, slow distance base miles, that's a good debate. Okay. But I, I think compare, and I, I know why that it's an exciting debate. Now we'll kind of get into that as we talk a little bit about polarized training, because they are kind of opposites, but they don't, you can't just, you don't have to pick one or the other. I mean, they can work together. They're like, like, like tools, you know, and sometimes one tool works better than another tool depending on what you're trying to do. So, yeah. Like I have this tool I host a podcast with, <laughs> ah, um, really quickly to, to define terms, define sweet spot in a couple sentences, define polarized training in a couple sentences, just to like okay. establish oh. terms out of the gates. If you're not familiar okay, with Okay. So those. I'll, 
I'll, I'll, I'll start with sweet spot and just do it kind of quickly. That's um, exactly what I just told you to do. Okay. And I just killed how much time telling you how quickly I'm going to do it. These episodes aren't too short, Dan. That's not our problem. Okay. So, so sweet spot training simply is just training just barely below th- threshold, you know, and it's kind of like an optimal training zone where you are completely aerobic you're not using your if you're if you're in the, if your zones are calibrated correctly when you're training at sweet spot, you're not tapping into anaerobic energy at all. You're completely aerobic, but it's the maximum amount of effort you can be doing and be completely aerobic. You're you're right. You're at the border crossing between aerobic land and anaerobic land. Yeah, right? and and you know, kind of the magic of it is you get similar benefits from training at sweet spot because it's just slightly below your threshold as you would if you're training at or above your threshold. Okay. And some would even argue it's, it's more effective than actually like if you go too far over your threshold, you're, you're almost going to get less benefit. Okay. So I said one or two sentences, but that's okay. Um, I can keep going. I, I know you can. I don't doubt it. So, um, polar, polarized training. Okay, polarized. This won't be a short Because this is not a cycling term. Polarized no, training. This is something I heard in my sports med class at, And that's really a, an important thing to point out that this didn't, like, this isn't something the cycling world invented. Um, it applies to cycling, but some people, it, you do have to keep in mind that this is not a cycling specific um, sports term. So like very broadly in, in the, in the wider context of sports at large, what does polarization like mean at its most basic level? So the most basic, and, and I think everyone's heard of this is like 80% of the workouts that you do are easy and 20% are hard and okay. you try and avoid the middle. Okay. So, so in cycling specifically, how, like what's the cycling definition of polar? Like it, it's the same thing, but I think some people take the purest definition too far to exclude some other types of beneficial workouts that, um, you know, so, so let me, so how, how polarized works is how, what it's based on is physiologically we have two thresholds. Okay. Okay. What are they? So the first threshold is called LT1 and it stands for lactate threshold number one. Okay. And the second one is lactate threshold number two or LT2. Oh, I thought I've always heard lactate like lactate threshold and assumed that was one thing. No, there's 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 two different things. And then there's the the area in between which you know, in traditionally is tr- you try to avoid it. Um, with, like is it like junk miles? Is that kind of where that comes yeah, from? Yeah, we really need to talk about that. Okay. But save a um, whole episode for that probably. Yeah, exactly, okay. cuz I have feelings on that. Um, so so below your Below, okay, as we've mentioned before, you know, is, is the intensity of your exercise increases, your body does different things to meet those demands. So, so LT1 is a threshold that below that threshold, your, um, your muscles are, are basically burning fat. Um, they are, and you're only recruiting your, your slow twitch fibers. Okay. Once you, um, once you above, you bump above that, um, you know, you start to recruit some of your, your kind of middle twitch, your type two A fibers. And, and at that point you get like a little bump in lactate. And, um, because below that you're, you're hardly producing any lactate at all. Once you kind of get to that first threshold 
and you start recruiting more of your type 2A muscles, it bumps up your lactate just a little bit. So really quick, to, so make sure we understand this. We talk about lactate all the time, and, and we talk about lactate threshold. People even say, oh, my legs are sore because they're full of lactate from a heart. Like, could you very basically define like what lactate is? And I think there are a lot of misconceptions about it, right? Yeah, and we're going to do a whole episode on lactate, but quickly, it's it's something that your body produces when it's working anaerobically, and it's reused by by different parts of the body is, is a fuel. It's actually a very useful substance that our body creates. Um, and, but it's, it's a really good marker of what our body's doing internally. So it's, it's almost like we need, mostly need to understand it as like a measuring stick. It's like a you, really good measure. Like you look it's similar at lactate to heart levels to decide where. Yeah. It's similar okay. to heart rate. It's, it's a really good way to indicate, um, what type of metabolism you're using to exercise. But this is interesting because that is not something that we measure all the time, if ever. I don't know if I've ever been able to look at a sheet of paper that told me what my lactate level was. How, yeah. do, we, how do we know where it is and how is it useful if we never really see that number? Well, you can. It's something that you can have tested. Like where they prick you in the lab, right? Yeah, you know, you and, and, and you basically, you know, you'll start out, you'll kind of do a ramp test and they'll prick you at given intervals in... And they'll basically see what your heart rate is and your power is at a certain lactate level. And um, it'll be flat until you hit this first threshold. And all of a sudden it jumps up from like one millimole to like two or something. Or it just There's a sudden jump once you start recruiting those type 2A muscles. Okay, so, so LT1, that is essentially what LT1 means is, is that that's when you start recruiting type and really quick to find type 2 muscles. Um, so your type one muscles are completely aerobic. They, they, they will use fat as fuel. Um, they're slow twitch muscles. They're very slow to fatigue. Um, the type two A muscles are, they're fast twitch muscles, but they're trainable and they can, they, they act aerobically, but, um, but they will use carbohydrate as fuel. Um, and, and they can with training eventually behave more like type one muscles. So you hit LT1 pretty quickly, right? Like LT1 is, is like, how hard are you going when you hit LT1, roughly speaking? Um, it's, it's about, you know, it's, it's roughly around 60% of your threshold. Okay. You know, so like going, it, it's, it's, it's an effort, right? Well, I mean, it's your zone too. And, okay. And there's, you know, there's actually a pretty good way to test for that other than actually getting a lactate because the lactate test is probably the best way, even though a lot of people don't, you know, take this, the samples frequently enough to really get a good right. result and, and it's not really accessible. So there's a lot of more functional ways to figure out that, um, that first threshold. Um, Steven Seiler actually has a, a, a way that's pretty reliable where you take, um, Let's see if I can, you take your heart rate max okay. and subtract it from your resting heart rate. Okay. Okay. So like, we'll say my heart rate max is like, um, easy math. Let's say it's 200. It's not, but let's say it is to make the math. Okay. Easy. Well, you, you do have your calculator out. You can do the yeah, math. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Okay. We'll, we'll say my heart rate max, let's say is one, 170. Okay. And my resting heart rate will say 60. Okay. Okay, so you take the difference between those two right. numbers. 110. 110, and you multiply that by 0.6. So that would be 66. 66, and then you add back in your resting heart rate. 
Whoa. Okay. So that was that was a little complicated. So registering we just said it was sixty. Was sixty. Okay. So yeah, that'd be one hundred and twenty-six. One hundred and twenty-six should be about my. That's a good way of estimating your LT one. Okay. So I get on my bike, start riding, watching my heart rate, hit one twenty-six. I've hit LT one. Right. In theory. In, in theory. A, a, good, a pretty good estimation. Okay. Now the way you can tell if you actually have or not is. You know, if you do it like on, on your trainer or something, you can watch, you can just hold that heart rate and watch your power or you, you, um, and if you hold it at that power, that power and that heart rate should stay the same and not drift one way or the other. Theoretically. Theoretically. So, and then LT2 is, is higher up, but when do you hit LT2 roughly? Um, LT2 is, so LT2, that's, um. What LT2 is, and LT2 is probably a more important threshold okay. to be aware of, um, because like if you're just above LT1, it's not that different. You're right. you're doing about the same thing. You're just recruiting some some type 2A muscles. Okay, you know, not not a huge deal really. Some people right. kind of freak out about training in that zone, and it's really not overhyped a little bit. Yeah. So, but when, when are you hitting LT2? So LT2 is when you're producing so much lactate that your body can no longer process it. Okay. And it starts to build up in your bloodstream. It drops the pH in your muscles. And, and that's, you know, we've talked about the threshold a lot. You know, once you kind of hit your threshold, that's where you start, rather than being able to ride for hours, your hours turn into minutes at that point. That's like really destructive riding, basically, right? Uh, I don't know if I, maybe, yeah. You know, it's, you're using a completely different metabolism at that point. And, and at the LT2 point, that's when you start to get an anaerobic contribution. Okay. You know, below that, you're completely aerobic, um, you know, using both type 1 and some type 2A muscles. Above that, you start recruiting more type 2B and your metabolism becomes more anaerobic. So, okay. and you're producing, you're producing more lactate so your muscles become more acidic and you you know you just really can't spend as much time there you're very limited it's unsustainable so so like our hypothetical person with the max heart rate of 170 and the rest heart resting heart rate of 60 is there some cool math trick to figure out where your lt2 is so that's where like the like we talk about like ftp tests is a pretty good way of doing that as long as you do like a proper like an hour-long test is probably the most accurate um, I'm, I'm actually interested in doing some eight minute tests. There's, you can do like two, eight minute tests. And, okay. But yeah, you can kind of estimate that by, by doing like a, an FTP test or an FTP test. And then is it the, your, your highest heart rate during your FTP test? Is it your average? Like what heart rate? How do you figure well, out your LT2 heart so rate? So the FTP test is for power. So you, right, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Um, How do you figure that out? For heart rate, you could probably just do like a, like a 20 minute test. Well, and that would probably be get you like your max heart rate. And then you could take a percentage of that. But, um, as, as far as heart rate goes, it would be similar, like a heart rate that you could sustain for roughly about 30 minutes to an hour. Okay. So like, so LT one and really quick, let's like get out a pen and paper for people listening, run over that equation to figure out your LT one again. What would that be? So you just take the difference between your max heart rate and your resting heart rate. So max heart rate minus resting heart rate. You multiply it by 0. 0.6. Times 0. 0.6. And then you add back in your resting heart rate. Plus resting heart rate, okay. And it, it roughly, 
it works pretty well with like like your your Andy Coggins zones with your zone two. Okay. Yeah. And then to figure out LT two, like you do the when you're doing that twenty minute test or the thirty minute FTP test or whatever. Um, is it just like the, the kind of heart rate you finish at or like, no, it'd be the a heart rate that over that time is you settle in at. Okay. All you right. Know, while you're doing that effort, you know, okay. like, you know, so yeah, so those are your two zones. No, one interesting thing to point out about, about polarized training is, is it's cool because it's based on physiology. It's not just like a percentage of your FTP or anything. These are actually like physiological points that your body reaches and so um, polarized training just has three zones and I, I usually don't communicate using the three zones just because it confuses people but below LT1 is zone 1 between LT1 and LT2 is called zone 2 and above you know between LT2 and your VO2 max is zone 3 so it's just a three zone model um, how it equates to the usual five to six zone models that we use is like um, below LT1 is essentially zone two. Um, between the two is basically what we would call zone three. And above is zones four, five, and six, and seven, or however many zones you do. So, so when people talk about like their lactate threshold or whatever, are they referring to, to LT1 or LT2? LT2 typically. And, okay. And, and a good terminology term for that is your MLSS, your maximum lactate steady state. Okay. And, and that's, um, yeah, so that's a good term for your LT2. Okay. Um, so yeah, so, so the basic concept of, of polarized training is that 80% of your training is done below LT1, which we call zone two or zone one in a three zone model. Uh, but from now on, we're just going to keep using our five-zone model just so we don't get confu- make it confusing. Um, and 20% of your workouts, not time, but your actual scheduled workouts, would be above zone or LT2 or zone 4, 5, and 6. And in theory, very little would be in between, which we consider zone 3. Right. So that would be polarized training and that's polarized that's what we'd call polarized training okay so like like with that in mind um why is polarized training such a big deal because like we said this is like a meta concept in sports and athleticism broadly um what are like what why why should why should i care what are the benefits of polarized training okay well there's there's a lot um polarized training is very well scientifically backed first of all so this um, isn't like this year's crazy guess on whatever blog says this will make you faster. Like this is like no, it, this is like a heritage concept that we know works. This is the theory of gravity. I would say it's probably right? the most well respected currently okay. right now. Um, but I think I think the most important thing or the best thing about polarized training is that it encourages you to get a lot of of training below that LT one your your zone two training for lack of a better term. Um, there's a lot of magic in, in zone two training. And, um, part of that magic, one of the biggest things is like, as soon as you, one thing is when you, when you bump up from LT one into that middle zone into LT two, 
you start to introduce some autonomic stress, you know, some of that fight or flight stress that we've talked, and it's just a little bit that gets introduced at that point. Um, you know, that's that's kind of like autonomic stress is kind of on an exponential curve, and the more intense it gets, the you know, the greater that gets. Um, but that's when it kind of starts to get introduced. So, like people that do a lot of training can do a lot of volume without excessive autonomic stress. So that's that's a huge plus right there. Um, another one is really our goal with training. If, if we really want to truly be good endurance athletes, the more slow twitch dominant we are, the better, the, the more we can do recruiting our slow twitch fibers, the better, more durable athlete will be. That's when you can really start to do like races back to back and, and you know, big, grander events and so forth is, is, is we, tra we train those systems, those muscles better. And the interesting thing about training those muscles is, so like <clears throat> there's, there's a principle called the size principle with muscle recruitment. And we talked a little bit about muscle recruitment, I think during our strength training podcast or something, but I think this is a super, super important point to understand. I really want to draw some attention to this is when we, when we, when we're recruiting muscles, you know, when we're doing like low efforts, we begin by recruiting motor groups of small motor groups of, of slow twitch fibers, right? Okay. Okay. Is, is the intensity increases as the force increases, um, the demands for that starts to recruit bigger motor units and you start recruiting, you know, like your, your two a and two B muscle fibers, but you continue as you continue to recruit new groups of muscle fibers, you're still using those fast twitch fibers. Okay. It's not like, you know, to, to do light loads, you use fast twitch. And then all of a sudden, if you're doing a heavier load, you switch off the fast twitch and switch on, or you switch off the slow twitch and switch on the faster twitch muscles. This, the, the slow twitch muscles are still recruited even during bigger efforts. So maybe kind of analogous to the like an all-wheel drive system works in a car. Like the front wheels on, on my old Toyota RAV4, the front wheels were always driving, but then when I started slipping when there was an additional need, I'd also get the rear wheels. It didn't turn off one set of wheels and turn on the other. Is that kind of exactly, the concept? Exactly, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so like when you're trying to train your slow twitch muscles, you can't really train them by pushing harder. Oh, so this is this is me. This is this is like the Joe Draper problem here. Is that like you can't suffer your way out of every single training program. You can't just like I'm going to go ride so hard. Like this is where it is necessary to do some amount of the kind of like the longer um, low intense stuff, right? Yeah. The only way you can really train these slow twitch muscle muscle fibers is through time. There's really no shortcuts because once you increase the intensity you're just recruiting different types of muscle fibers. So, so if you really want to improve your type one muscles, it takes time. There's really no shortcut, you know, and as you do over time, as these get, you know, as these muscle fibers get stronger, you know, through, through time, they can start to produce more power and, and become a more dominant part of your bike ride. So I really just can't emphasize how important this is if you really want to be top level. So, so that's a cool thing. Um, yeah. So, so it's time, not intensity that improves our slow twitch muscle, muscle fibers. Um, and like, why, why should you care about, why is an athlete with, is it, 
Is it that you want more slow twitch muscle fibers total or more slow twitch muscle fibers relative to fast twitch muscle fibers? Um, kind of both, but really what you want just more of your performance to come from your slow twitch fibers because they're more efficient. They, they don't really get tired. They, they, they fatigue very slowly. Um, you know, and that's how, that's how these guys can do the tour de France. So say like in, in a lab, two athletes who are exactly the same, but one is more, would you say more slow twitch dominant? Am I using that right there? So one is all their stats are the same, except one is more slow twitch dominant. One is more fast twitch dominant. Is it just the slow guy one's going the slow twitch one's going to be more durable over doing the same efforts and stuff? Yeah, they're going to, they're going to be able to, you know, say, say they could produce the same power. Um, but one was producing it mostly with slow twitch muscles and one was, was recruiting more fast twitch. The one recruiting the fast twitch would fatigue quicker, would probably honestly be more, more susceptible to cramping and probably, and, and have slower recovery too. Um, so it's a higher quality, more versatile athlete when, when you have slow twitch dominance. And that, like you said, that takes time. That's not something you can get to in a year, right? Yeah. And like, like say I was riding with a, like a world tour pro and we're riding side by side and you know, we were going down the street at 10 miles an hour, we'll say right flat road. Well, let's say 20 miles an hour. Okay. Okay. To be able to keep up, he's, he would be using completely slow twitch muscles and I would probably be like using like tons and tons of fast twitch. I mean, we'd be doing something completely different to produce that same amount of speed or power. So your bodies are doing different things to get you to the same place essentially, yeah. right? Okay. Mm-hmm. That makes enough sense. So this is a big deal. This is it's what a huge really se- like to say something biblical, separate the wheat from the t- tares or whatever it is. Sure. Did I, I just completely misquoted that, but that, that's kind of the point, right? This is like what the, what, what separates the, the good cyclist from the great cyclist, right? Yeah, it, it's, it really does. It's a super important concept and there, and there really aren't great shortcuts. Yeah, you can't. And this is why somebody like Remco is so amazing is that he's been a professional cyclist for like five years. You know, like most, most professional cyclists in Europe start when they're 10, you know, like there are pictures of Gary and Thomas doing races when he was like eight years old or whatever. It's like, that's why it's so remarkable and so rare to see people get to that point quickly. But for most of us, it is. And this is kind of why like the Maybird, Maybird is a project at all to get people like, how many people do you think spend a ton of time on cycling for three years and then leave it behind before they can even become this whole new rider that's waiting down the road, right? Yeah. Three years of riding, you're still a beginner. Right. No matter how great you did in your varsity race, you're still a beginner rider after th- three or four and or you five, have, five years. Your ceiling is so high, right? It's like, and if anybody listening to this is that rider who came into this and is doing really, really good in their first few years, you know, if you do things right and you spend a lot of time on the bike, you could be, I mean, you, you could be a way better out. athlete when you're 40 than you are right now. Yeah. So that's inspirational. Yeah. Like that's genuinely inspirational. That's not even just a platitude. There are numbers to back this up, huh? Yeah. Cool. So another reason I like, so we kind of talked about like the, you know, like the 80%, the benefits of that 80% of the zone two rides that you do, the benefit, the other benefits of those rides really is what it allows you to, to do in addition to those long miles or the, the, the lower and the lower intensity work that you do because, um, you know, if, if you really control that intensity, when it's time to do hard workouts, they can be, you can just light it up. They can be awesome. Um, 
So it really works well when it's combined with high intensity work. Um, so it, it just keeps the quality of your high intensity work higher quality. And, and they pair really well nicely together because, um, you know, you're, you're limiting when you, if you, if you stay at your zone two, you're limiting the amount of autonomic stress. So that on those days that you do have hard workouts scheduled, you're only dealing with a couple days a week of autonomic stress. So something you've told me before is, is if you're looking at the five zone model, spending time in zone three gives you the same benefits as spending time in zone two, but it's more destructive. Is that, is that true? Or am I misquoting you there? Okay. That's a good thing to bring up. Um, cause there are a lot of, it, it is true. In in fact, really anywhere like below, like, like below zone four to zone two, you really get similar benefits at training at zone two. Um, but the thing is, is you just can't do it as long, you know? So like most of the benefits from zone two come from doing it a lot, accumulating a lot of time there, you know, and if you increase that intensity too much, it, it limits the amount of time that you can spend there. And it also introduces more autonomic stress, you know, which is, um, it's not necessarily like a bad thing, especially, I mean, especially if you're not in a period where you're doing high intensity work or something, you know, if it's like in the winter or during your base, you know, if you go above zone two, it's really not the end of the world. You get really, you still get the same aerobic benefits. It's just that it's not really a better benefit than if you stayed below at zone two or below. And you are paying for it in the form of additional fatigue. Right? You're going to, yeah, it's going to take a little longer to recover. Um, the problem I think comes if, if you're trying to mix that with with high intensity intervals. So you're it's, basically you're going to end up hijacking your high intensity stuff by, by doing zone three when you really should be doing zone two. Yeah. Okay. But there's some people that just call it junk miles or think, you know, and it's, it's still way in the heck better than not working out at all. Right. You know? Right. Um, you're just doing a little extra work that probably isn't going to benefit you that much. Okay. But if you're somebody who's maybe like time crunch, doesn't have a ton of time to spend on the bike, or like you said, in a, in a part of the season where you're not doing high intensity stuff, you don't really have to worry about that. Right. Yeah. And I think that what you said is, is so true. It really depends on like how much time you've got, what point of the season it is. Like if you're, do, if you're building for a race, I would tend to avoid, you know, that kind of middle zone. Um, but if it's during the winter or the base season, it's, it's fine. You know, it's not, you're, you're going to be just fine. It, got it doesn't ruin your training or anything it does introduce a little more fatigue for the same benefit um the like the guy that does the empirical cycling memes he calls zone four spicy zone two spicy zone i two. love that that's okay that's a really good way to think of it because you really get similar benefits but you just can't spend as much time there okay that makes enough sense so like um like i've heard you say like like we talk about like different parts of the season this is like a not, not, you can't do this all season, right? Like this, your, your polarization strategy changes depending on where you are in your race season, right? Okay. So I am a, I'm a huge fan of polarized training. I, I believe in it. I think it's correct. I do have just a couple caveats. I don't know if I'd call them issues with polarized training. Some nuance. Some nuance. Yeah. The, the biggest one is I don't think you should do it all season. And I, a lot of the people that promote polarized training kind of make it sound like this is just all you have to do all season long and you're fine. 
I've actually kind of tried that and, and seen some athletes that have, have tried to be polarized all season long and they do end up getting stale. And, um, I, I still think that you need to periodize your season. Um, it's like one of the things like in a lab, it would be better all season when you're dealing with actual human beings. It just is more practical and you get better real world results kind of a thing. You know, and maybe it, it in other sports, it works that way. You know, um, cycling really, and even, you know, even Dr. Seiler, who's kind of the godfather of polarized training, has kind of admitted that things are a little different with cycling than, than maybe some of the other sports. Um, the other, my, probably my biggest caveat with polarized training is, you know how we mentioned that your training is supposed to be completely below LT1 or above LT2, but I, I think that there's actually some huge benefits to during certain parts of the season to actually train slightly below LT2, which is sweet spot training. You know, and that's why there is kind of the deba- the debate between like polarized and sweet spot because um, polarized training is basically that middle zone. It's the upper end of that middle zone that polarized training t- tells you to avoid. But um, <clears throat> but that's where sweet spot training kind of lives is is between there. But um, you know, there's there's really some awesome huge benefits of training right below your threshold. Um, you know, it's, I've heard people say it's the best bang for your buck. What is, what do people mean when they say that in reference to sweet spot? So you're kind of, I mean, as we mentioned earlier, that's the most intensity you can produce and still remain completely aerobic. So, you know, if you don't have a lot of time, you're, you're probably getting a lot of benefits if you only have like an hour you know if you only have like an hour to train you might be getting more benefits doing that than just an hour of zone two because the magic of of zone two is accumulating a lot of time Um, if you don't have that time to offer perhaps you know perhaps a a sweet spot type workout could be more beneficial also it really um, it's really good at teaching your body to utilize lactate because that's the maximum amount of lactate your body can produce and reuse at the same time. And by training right there, it helps your body to be able to process lactate better, which is going to raise your threshold. And, and a lot of people say that you can really improve your FTP working just below it better than you can working just above it. And that's probably because you can spend more time there than you could above your, your FTP. So I have another question. Um, a word you hear bandied about all the time in cycling is tempo. Um, what, like what, what is, what does tempo mean? What do people mean when they say that? Is it, is it a bent? Like, what are your thoughts on that? I guess. So tempo really refers to your zone three. Okay. Um, sweet spot is, is just above tempo. It's like high tempo. Okay. Um, so somebody listening to this, like I've done sweet spot rides before and man, that was really uncomfortable. Could I just do tempo rides like a little below sweet spot? Or is that, is that like a, a, a bad so idea? Tempo is more like you're, you're really in tempo is where you're getting the same benefits with zone two. Right. You're just, you're just, you know, I mean, you're burning a few more calories. That might be a plus, you know, for some of us. Right. But, <laughs> but because tempo is like the fun. I think of tempo as like the funnest place to ride where it's like, you're going pretty fast, but you're not hurting that hard. Like, you oh, know, it's, it's way fun. And, and like, I can't emphasize it. It's not 
bad. I mean, like it's again, still better than you're not riding. You're your riding your bike. You're getting yeah. better, but like if and again, we're speaking to if your goal is to maximize your performance and and to win varsity next year, like it's probably not productive yeah, you're, to spend you're that not, much time there. Yeah, you're getting about the same benefits as with the zone two. You're getting a little more tired, and it could affect the quality of your. You know, sweet spot and tempo don't mesh well with high intensity intervals. They're gonna, they're gonna affect the quality. Like, um, you know, um, so so basically, just kind of how I do the whole polarized training thing, um, just to make it simple, because because the eighty twenty ratio, like, that doesn't really work for like what if you like I know a lot of riders that only ride twice a week, right? Right. Like, how would they do 80-20? Would they only do one high-intensity effort a month? It's probably not practical. Yeah. That, yeah. So, so, so how I kind of practically um, do polarized training is, um, is you only have one or two high in, hard workouts a, a, a week. And by, um, by hard, I mean, you know, more intense workouts a week. Okay. Inter- interval days? Yeah, basically. Okay. Um, during, during the base season, like when you're doing your base miles, I think those, those hard workouts should be sweet spot workouts. Okay. And then during your build periods, they should be like VO2, like either threshold or VO2 max intervals. And actually you can do threshold during your base too, but, um, but yeah, so, so during the base season, you would do one or two hard workouts at sweet spot and the rest of your riding would be like base zone two. And then when it's time to build for a race, you know, like about like eight to 10 weeks before your big event, then you do one or two VO two max workouts a week. Um, even if you're like, even if you're time crunched, I wouldn't do more than two hard workouts a week. If you're doing sweet spot, you could probably handle three. You know, if you're time crunched, you could probably handle three sweet spot workouts a week. But any additional riding you do, I would still do it zone two. Okay, that makes enough sense. Even if it's just an hour long zone two ride, for a time crunched athlete, that's going to make a huge difference. Okay. Um, one more term I, I want to ask some questions about. I hope I'm not like skipping ahead here. Um, what, when people say pyramidal training, how would you describe that? And is that something you'd be an advocate of? So what I do is actually pyramidal training where I allow some some sweet spot training. Okay. Um, what does what does pyramidal mean? Pyramidal just means you're doing you're doing LT one training, the training in between, and you're basically combining all three. And and I would say that I'm in pyramidal training. I mean, I think it's a term that's new and kind of emerging in the cycling world. Um, I think Tim Cusack talks a lot about it and so forth, but it's basically just kind of incorporating the benefits of, of sweet spot training with polarized training. Okay. You know, so is that, is that, it sounds like that's how you'd recommend. That's that's totally how I recommend, you know, where I have you, where I would have you do sweet spot training during, during the base season, it's definitely more of a pyramidal type model. Okay. So that makes sense. Yeah. And that, that would be my recommendation. Um, like if, and I, I like, and just to be clear here, like how many workouts above, so LT2, how many workouts above LT2 would you recommend per week? 
one or two. Okay. So like three, three or four is too much. Yeah. Three, you're not going to notice a difference. Four is going to do damage and make you slower. Okay. Well, that's wow. That's, that's an, yeah. you're, you're not one for emphatic statements, but that is one. Oh yeah. Four, I mean, four, you could maybe do like, you know, like one week if you're having, you know, if you're purposely having a really hard build block, you could do three in a week, but more than that there, you know, you just, it's too much. Yeah. It's too much. And the quality would suffer. Right, right, right. Okay. That makes enough sense. Like it would almost be like, like you have to write an essay for school and you decide you're going to write 80 pages when you really only need to do 10. It's like, there's, there's no point. The quality is going to be worse. It's, it's not better because there's more, right? That kind of principle, right? Yeah. I mean, one of the, I mean, really one of the beauties of the polarized concept is it keeps your hard rides really, really hard and your easy rides really, really easy. Cause otherwise what happens is, you know, like, like most kids out there, the like their normal rides they go on they're just going kind of hard the whole time and no you do something different but okay um but then when it's time to actually do a, a hard workout there's not a whole lot of difference there's just not a lot of contrast and i mean you're still getting better than someone that doesn't ride but you know it's it's like there's a good better and Maybe there's a best. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but there's at least a better. The, but there's at least a better. Yeah. Should that be a Mayberg T-shirt? There's at least. There's a better. at least a better. Yeah. There you go. It's um, inspirational. Yeah. And and so that's really what it helps you avoid is just, I mean, just so there's a contrast between your easy endurance days and your hard interval rides. So for a, a moment for people to like you know self reflect here and be introspective, if if you sit back and you're like wow, I couldn't really differentiate any of my rides and say this one was an easy ride, this one was a hard ride. They're all kind of the same. You should really like go back and listen to this again and, and, and really consider what you're doing, right? Well, yeah, or like, like, you know, when I ride with Nike kids sometimes, like when these rides start out, they're just like super hard. And, right. and then I go do intervals with them later and it feels about the same, you know I mean? Right, right. Like, like and that I repeat that really quick. Like, like basically... At the beginning of the ride, they're going as hard as they end up going in the intervals because, and they're probably trying in the intervals, right? You know, it's not like for a lack of effort. Um, like when people say, you only have so many matches to burn, you know, like none of us are superheroes. We have to be realistic. There's a certain amount of intensity and, and, and pain you're going to be able to deal with. And if you're, you're doing that in an, in a, like a non-strategic way, you're going to, you know, sell yourself short essentially is the basic sell here, right? Yeah. Yeah. You just really need, I mean, as Joe Frill says, you know, you got to make your easy rides. The biggest mistake beginners make is they make their easy rides too hard and their hard rides too easy. You know, there has to be just a huge contrast there. You know, and another thing too, that I see a lot uh, that a lot of riders do is they'll go on a ride and like most of the ride will be pretty easy, but they'll just throw in some gargantuan efforts into the ride Ah, so this is the personal this is, attack. Yeah, I'm, okay. This is this is I know this, a guy. This is where the kids would say I feel attacked, you know. <laughs> you know, and so they'll just go on a normal ride but just throw in some random really really hard efforts and they do it into every single ride. And and that's not good either because because they should really just be going to therapy more often. Probably. Okay. But, you know, they're they're introducing the autonomic stress every single time that they ride when you would be so much better off to like certain rides. The purpose of that ride is, 
you know, to slit, to train your slow twitch muscle fibers and to try to just collect as much time in zone two as you can and be disciplined and kind of keep it at that. And then other rides are, are actually the, the purpose is to spend as much time as you possibly can above threshold, you know, above LT2, you know, working on like VO2 max types workouts and try to make those rides where you just purposely accumulate as much time up there as you can. So you're really only accumulating autonomic stress like on those two days that week. And, um, you know, I, I would say that's probably a better bet for, for getting faster. So at the end of my character assassination here, is there anything else we need to cover? Well, you know, I have the opposite problem. I only ever ride easy. Okay, it's my turn. Sometimes there are people who never go hard and they <laughs> always ride in zone two no matter what. And while they can ride in zone two for a long time and that's impressive in its own weird, sick way, they never really go hard. And that that is my problem. I really never, ever go hard. I only, like I'm good at the zone two. I just, I need to do me some intervals here soon. I tried to get you to do some cross races this year. I give you plenty of opportunities. I know, like, People make fun of me for having only one speed and they are not wrong. Yeah. Well, there you go. But you know, let me just kind of point out that there are, there are a lot of different ways to get fast. Um, you know, and, and anyone that really claims that they know exactly the best way or the best intervals, usually trying to sell you something. Yeah. Th yeah. You know, there's whether you're doing polarized, whether you're doing sweet spot, whether you just go out and ride a lot or whether you, just go out and ride and have fun hammering with your friends pretty much there's more right ways to ride your bike than wrong ways uh, you know so don't freak out about this too much but there's at least a better there's at least a better yeah I mean these are some good principles and you know if I just had to sum the whole thing up there really are some awesome awesome benefits to like throttling back and accumulating a lot of time in easier, more pleasant and enjoyable zones. But when it's time and, you know, and like I said, only once or twice a week to, and during the right times in the season to really open it up, you got to make those count and you got to push the limits and just make it, you know, just light it up and make it awesome. And I would say that doing those things are going to improve your odds of being a better cyclist. Preach. All right. With that said, if you guys have questions, hit up Dan or I. We're, we're at the point where questions have kind of gone a little dry. Uh, if you ask us something, there's a it's great like chance we'll cover it. People might be more interested in skiing at this point in the season or something. I don't know. Yeah, a bunch of weirdos want to go do fun stuff. <laughs> Losers. Uh, yeah, so as always, you know where to send those. Um, if we don't uh, talk to you uh, next week, and we What's probably won't. Oh, oh, uh, should we do something on theme? Uh, let's do Blitzen. That's one of the reindeer, right? Yeah. The word of the day is Blitzen. And if we don't talk to you before uh, uh, Christmas, have a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, whatever it is you celebrate, spend some time with family, take a day off the trainer, you know, like uh, have, have fun and we will bring you a, a New Year's kind of episode. Fair enough? Sounds good. All right. Talk to you soon, guys. <laughs>